Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name's Robert Lamb. I'm Joe McCormick, and we're here with our trusty mailbot, Carney, for our weekly listener mail episode. Is this the second of our weekly listener mail episodes? I think that's right. Hey, it is, yes. I feel like we should jump right in and, and not delay at all. All right. Uh, hit us with it, Carney. What, what do we have? Okay, this first message is about our episodes on spinning, and this comes from Jenna, though it actually came in before we recorded the episode, so it, it'll require a bit of backtracking. Jenna says, Hello all. I've just been listening to your listener mail episode from November 19th, and you were talking about ballet dancers dancing on point and suggested you may do a future episode on spinning humans and the related centrifugal forces. Please consider pole dancers if you do pursue this subject. While working on a spinning pole, the speeds achieved and the length of time spent spinning in a single direction at a time are considerable, all while expected to dismount or land gracefully mid-spin and continue without looking like you're about to face plant. I enjoy hearing your episodes whenever they come out, along with the Stuff You Should Know podcast, equipping me with very random facts, which I revel in relating to my friends and colleagues. Keep up the good work, Jenna. Well, Jenna, unfortunately, we recorded the episodes about spinning before I read this message, but... I decided to uh, to look it up and see if there were uh, there was anything interesting I could find about pole dancing physics. And wouldn't you know it, I came across a really good article. There was one by uh, Jennifer Ouellette that was in Gizmodo, published in 2016, called The Simple Physics of Pole Dancing. And this actually does get into some very interesting stuff that you might not think about. Obviously, pole dancing is going to require massive amounts of like core and upper body strength. It's a real athletic feat, especially the, the more like athletic athletic, you know, competition style people do that I was seeing some videos of in this article. Uh, but it also apparently involves the careful management of friction, which is kind of funny, but also mm -hmm. really interesting. So there's this section in the article where uh, Ouellette is speaking with Valerie Jameson, who's a content director for New Scientist and who has a PhD in physics. And so uh, Ouellette writes, quote, you need friction, but not too much and not too little. It depends on what move you're trying to execute. Quote, in some of these moves, people are hanging upside down by the crook of their knee, and then they slide down, says Jameson. Uh, just, oh, just thinking of that is terrifying to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, the dancers can pull it off because they have such fine motor control. They contract their muscles and press into the pole to stick, then loosen their hold just enough to slide until they need to stop. The skimpy outfits can be a boon in that regard because bare skin has the right friction coefficient to help dancers stick to the pole, perhaps with a light dusting of resin on the hands and thighs to keep sweat at bay. And there's also a note about the selection of footwear affecting what you can do in pole dancing because apparently uh, like different materials on your shoes will help you get a better grip on the pole with your foot if you're using that to hold yourself up in the air while you're doing something else with the rest of your body. Um, so anyway, yes, I, I am fully impressed by the, uh, the athleticism of this just as I am with, with ballet and skating. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I wish we'd had, uh, had this one on hand. Uh, when we'd uh, done those episodes. But the, getting to discuss it here on Listener Mail, that, that's close enough. Yeah. Uh, Rob, do you want to read this message about antimetaboly? Yeah, here's one on antimetabolies from Christopher. Christopher writes, Hello. 
As someone whose bachelor's degree was in linguistics and psychology, the topic of antimetabolies on your Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast was a nice treat in my daily playlist this morning. Thank you for that very much. As someone whose master's was in human factors engineering and whose PhD was oriented around topics of situated cognition, I felt compelled to try and write in to a podcast host for the first time. (laughs) I typically listen to podcasts while I walk my dog twice each day, so maybe it was an easier connection for me to make, but I was surprised your discussion did not approach any of the physical aspects that might well uh, coincide with your explored topic of human proclivities for ABBA patterns. Before humans could write, they could walk. And assumedly, most successful walks bring the walker back home again in the same path in reverse. When you set off, you might encounter things in a specific order, A, B, C, D, E. And then when coming back, the the breadcrumbs can lead you home in a comforting and secure manner, E, D, C, B, A. In the most simple terms, I go from here to there, A, then B, and then return from there to here, B, then A. I am the same person in the same place, so I feel complete, satisfied, accomplished, etc. So this primitive spatial dimension might easily be associated with an intuitive feeling of comprehensiveness when exposures are experienced in a reverse order. Moreover, time and some randomness has passed between in a unidirectional manner between the start and end of the walk or between successive days of similar routines. So the opportunity for change is also there, such as with an ABBA pattern that presents a negation or change in meaning, e.g. the journey is the destination. (laughs) I am not exactly the same as when I started out, and isn't that sometimes of interest and importance? My interests and pursuits in situated cognition as another, perhaps further extended or advanced, paradigm of cognitive psychology, e.g. behavioralism, then cognitivism, then situativism, challenge me to imagine and explore how cognition and thinking does not really only simply exist slash reside within the brain, but also outside of it, in the body and its movements, in environments, through various artifacts, technology, cultures, etc., My profession in human factors and user experience tends to reward more holistic study and understanding of operations and environments in which usage-based interfaces and designs succeed in respects to given constraints. So again, thank you for your interesting discussion, and I hope these above thoughts may bring you new and exciting ones. Cheers, Christopher. This is really interesting, you know, Joe, because this uh, discussing, you know, returning in reverse order, the backtracking to come back. Uh, mm-hmm. This reminds me of our recent episode on foraging and right. the, the, the one paper that looked at potential differences in the division of labor between hunters and foragers and how the forager would 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 be more likely to return along the exact same route, whereas the hunter would go out to kind of a winding track, tra- you know, trailing the prey, but then would have to make a, du- they couldn't retrace their steps because it was such a winding uh, trail. They would have to make a direct beeline back to camp. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that has any, any real role in this discussion, but, uh, but it made me think of it. Yeah. That's another, it's one of those things that I think it'd be difficult to demonstrate this, but it's definitely an interesting idea that something about, uh, you know, basic types of foraging and exploration activities would have psychological relevance even to abstract concepts like the words in a sentence or ideas in a list. Yeah. And the, the ABBA uh, thing, too, like it makes me think of the classic sitcom format, right? You must always uh, end your journey at the beginning again. 
you know, hmm. uh, there, there, there's something comforting in, in that, that you must come back to the same place and then the next episode will be another departure and a return. Yeah. Oh, because in the sitcom, nothing ever changes. Right. Yes. So are you ready for the next message? Let's do it. This is from Ahmed. Ahmed says, hey, guys, longtime listener and stuff to blow your mind lover here. Your episode on anti-metaboly and its frequency in old Middle Eastern texts made me think of the Kalevala, which is absolutely jam packed with similar repetitious turns of phrase. I think the Kalevala might make for a rich subject for you to do an episode on. For one, the religion slash myth of the pre-Christian Finnic peoples is very interesting and relatively neglected compared to Greek, Norse, Egyptian, etc. myths. The story of how Elias Lonrote, a 19th century physician, went about collecting scraps of oral tradition stories and putting them, sometimes with the seams very much showing, in a front-to-back order, is also neat and reminiscent of the hard task that other compilers of folk tradition like Ovid have also had to do. Lastly, there are cool echoes of the Kalevala in modern culture. For example, there seems to be some evidence that the Kalevala's demigod protagonist, Vainamoinen, contributed greatly to Tolkien's creation of Tom Bombadil or Gandalf. Anyways, keep Mm. up the great work, Ahmed. And I looked up Vainamoinen. I hope I'm saying that sort of close. I listened to a pronunciation, and that's about as close as I can do. Um, he is like a figure who was born of this like ocean creature. And like when he was born, he was already an old wizard with the knowledge of the world. He's a <laughs> strange magical figure. There's a scene I was reading about in the, in the epic poem where he has to build a harp out of fish bones. It's pretty cool. But I also looked up some quotes from the Kalevala, and uh, these are some passages I found from the John Martin Crawford translation that I wanted to read. So this first one goes like this. Thus the ancient Vainamoinen in his copper-banded vessel left his tribe in Kalevala, sailing o'er the rolling billows, sailing through the azure vapors, sailing through the dusk of evening, sailing to the fiery sunset, to the higher landed regions, to the lower verge of heaven. And so there I think you see some of those uh, repetitious phrasings that Ahmed was talking about. But then also there was another passage that doesn't have the same stylistic effects, but I just liked it. Quote, Thus the wise and worthy singer sings not all his garnered wisdom. Better leave unsung some sayings than to sing them out of season. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, you, know, you know, one of the things about this character, if I am not mistaken, uh, this is the the primary character in The Day the Earth Froze, which was a... Uh, you know, the the, the Russo-Finnish uh, film from 1959 that was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. You know, the saga of the Sampo. Oh, I, I don't know if I've seen this one. Oh, it's it's quite good. Um, I, I, I'm sure it's also quite beautiful in like an, an undegraded, uh, you know, copy of the film. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, you also you look up this character and you see various illustrations of him, say, defending the Sampo against harpy type creatures. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, this 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 character is the real deal. Nice. All right, this one comes to us from Jennifer. Jennifer says, Robert and Joe, I enjoyed your recent episode on antimetabolies. A couple of years ago, I was comparing a few of the chiasmus in the Bible and began to wonder if that was a literary device that was still used today. I found, as you did, that the ABBA uh, antimetaboly is quite common, but the longer uh, chiasmus is more difficult to find. 
chiasmus, chiasmus. It's a, it's a, it can be a tough one. <laughs> we keep saying uh, I it was, both ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thrilled, uh, thrilled though, to run across the website pasted below. On it, the author maps a 30 point, uh, chiasmus in the Back to the Future trilogy and suggests that some of the greatness of the franchise comes from its use of chiasmus to bring the viewer to a satisfying ending. Thought you might enjoy taking a look at it and watching the trilogy again while watching out for it. Thanks for what your podcast teaches me and for what I teach from your podcast to others. This is a great point, and a lot of really structurally satisfying fiction does exactly this. It, it takes the form of a broad structural chiasmus uh, that sort of like goes from A to Z and then back from Z to A. Okay, this next message is about Thanksgiving food, specifically gravy. This is from Matt. Matt says, good day, Robert and Joe. <laughs> good day. <laughs> uh, regarding gravy and its historical slash cultural importance and origins, I'd like to highlight the importance of fat in nutrition. Gravy, in its traditional form anyway, is fat. Fat was in many ways a most important component of nutrition, or at least it was for some people based on the conditions in which they lived, e.g. traditional Inuit diets come to mind, though I'm no expert. It's the taste and the energy just as important as the meat itself, perhaps more so in some cases. I would propose the reverence for gravy historically stems in part from the recognition that it is a highly valuable energy source, essentially an extension of meat itself a highly valuable food uh, food source historically. Waste not particularly when the energy factor is so high. This might be a hot take, but worth reiterating, I think. Thanks for the episode, Matt. This is a good point, Matt, and it made me think about one of the important uh, functions of the invention of pans for cooking. Now, you could cook meat that you, you know, if you, you caught and killed an animal, you could roast its meat over an open fire, but if you think about it, you you could actually be losing a lot of energy, like just dripping off into the fire and burning up and creating mm -hmm. smoke. Once you have a pan to cook in, you can catch everything. So you really don't don't lose a drop. Yeah. And it, it, it allows you to create those those secondary products that are that are often yeah, it's extremely tasty. Yeah. All right. This one comes to us from Eric. Hey, mind blowers. Uh, that's us, I guess. Um, <laughs> he says, I was delighted to see that you did an episode on one of my favorite topics, Venus. So much interesting stuff to say about it. First of all, you speculated that it would be easier to get a rocket to orbit from a balloon than from the surface. This is absolutely true on Earth. And there have been several attempts to design balloon-launched rockets or raccoons, <laughs> most notably a Spanish company called Zero Two Infinity. But when it comes to Venus, that, that is a mind-boggling understatement. Assuming we could build a rocket that could actually survive on the surface of Venus, which is not uh, possible with current technology, a rocket would have to push against that absurdly thick atmosphere, which is hard enough on Earth, but is 90 times as hard on Venus. We would have to land um, a uh, Saturn V rocket on Venus, fully fueled with machinery to keep the, the cry cryogenic fuel below negative 100 degrees Celsius in 600 plus uh, degrees Celsius temperatures just to get something like the Mercury capsule into orbit. That might actually be an overestimation, as I haven't tried to do the math. 
I can't stress enough how horrible Venus's atmosphere is for space exploration. You have to go up to 50 kilometers just to get to Earth-like pressures that high up on Earth, and you're almost in vacuum. I don't remember you mentioning uh, this, so my apologies if you did. One difficulty with balloons on Venus is the sulfuric acid clouds. I don't recall offhand at what altitude these clouds form, but it means that any balloon not made of glass will have an operational lifetime much shorter than on Earth. Balloons might not last long enough to make the return to Earth window for crewed missions. One thing you mentioned offhand was whether it was safe to have balloons floating in the tops of gas giants owing to radiation. In fact, it's actually not as dangerous as you might think. One uh, thing the Juno probe discovered is that Jupiter's ionosphere, which is the cause of most of the radiation in the region of Jupiter, actually has a lower limit, and it doesn't extend below a certain altitude. They modified the probe's planned orbit to pass below this level to boost its lifetime. The real problem for a balloon on a gas giant is lift. Since gas giants are mostly composed of the lightest possible gas, hydrogen, there isn't anything lighter to use as a lifting gas except warmer hydrogen. That is, (laughs) unless you can build a rigid balloon that can hold a low-pressure gas or a vacuum, which is not technically feasible yet. Venus is much better for balloons because since its atmosphere is mostly CO2, even oxygen or nitrogen will work as a lifting gas. So in the future, we could have habitats not just suspended under a balloon, but housed within one. Sorry for (laughs) such a long email, but as I said, Venus is a very exciting topic for me. Best wishes, and I hope to see thousands more great episodes from you. Eric. Eric, you're going to see thousands more great episodes for us in the next two months. <laughs> well, well, I, I guess certainly before the, before 2021 um, is done, yeah, there will be what I guess there'll be a thousand more episodes plus, right? I can't do math in my head right now. It's getting late in the day. Uh, okay. But yeah, fantastic email, Eric. Th- thank you very much. Okay, this next message comes to us from Kate. It's about our ice episodes from earlier in the year about pikecrete and stuff like that. Kate says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Thanks so much for all you do. I'm a research scientist at the National Renewable Energy Lab, and your show is my go-to listen for when I have routine housekeeping work around the lab. You keep me entertained while making buffers, preparing samples, or running simple but time-consuming experiments. I wanted to write in and say how much I'm enjoying the Weird House Cinema and suggest that the 1984 classic The Ice Pirates should absolutely go on your list. My husband and I rewatched it recently, and it, it is as wonderfully bad and hilarious as I remember from my youth. I also wanted to tell you how much I've enjoyed the episodes on ice that you've done in the last couple of months. I'm a little late to this party, I know. I wanted to suggest a follow-up in this vein with an episode on cryogenic electron microscopy. This technique involves flash freezing samples in such a way that they form vitreous ice, meaning a lack of hexagonal structure is formed. This preserves the structure of biological molecules dissolved in the sample. In the past decade or so, this technique had a huge impact on structural biology, as it has allowed visualization of cellular, subcellular, and even individual protein structures, while avoiding the difficulties and limitations of more traditional X-ray crystallography techniques. There, there is a deep pool of interesting topics to be found here, including the details of vitreous ice and how it relates to people freezing slash reanimation. Whoa. The AI of the analysis software that sorts through the higher number of images collected and determines the uh, orientations that were captured in each. Why older X-ray techniques are limited, parentheses, a lot of proteins can't be crystallized and or only certain conformers form into crystals, 
and the new insights that have been made with the technique. Hope this email inspires you to consider this topic and keep up with the exploration of ice generally because it is a fascinating topic and water is so central to our understanding of life as we know it. Thanks for all you do. Cheers, Kate. And then she's got a PS says, you guys should also revisit the electric microbe land topic you did a few years ago. I dug it up for a re-listen because I reviewed several grants on this topic recently, and there is a ton of new and exciting work in this area, including some at our lab. If you're interested, I'd be happy to send you references, uh, Kate. So, yeah, thanks for getting in touch, Kate. I think that's a, that's a really great idea. Plus, uh, the ice pirates uh, may be worth considering. I don't know. I don't have a, f- a strong memory of ice pirates, but it has a great cast. There are a lot of fun connections with it. Is Dick Miller in it? Um, not, I don't know. I don't think Dick Miller's in it. But you got pretty much everybody else. Robert Ulrich, uh, John Carradine, Ron Perlman, Angelica Houston, <laughs> Bruce Valanche, uh, Ian Abercrombie. It's, it's pretty yeah, it's, it's stacked. Okay. Do you want to wrap up with a few listener responses to Weird House Cinema? Yeah, yeah, we're already talking about it a little bit. Let's let's go all the way in. Okay, here's one from Forrest. Forrest says, You guys briefly mentioned Marjo Gortner in a recent episode, emphasizing what a befuddling figure he is. Was wondering if you're aware of the documentary Marjo. It's actually incredible. Made in 1972 before he started acting, kind of an expose slash heist film about how he was manipulated as a child, etc. Uh, yeah, thanks for this note for us. So Marjo came up when we were talking about Star Wars ripoff movies. I guess this must have been in the Weird House Cinema about Message from Space. Uh-huh. Because Marjo is in Star Crash, the one with uh, with David uh, – what's his name? Uh, uh, David Hasselhoff. Yeah. And Marjo is like – he's a sidekick character in that movie. There's this amazing scene where somebody says like no one can withstand these deadly rays and then Marjo responds these deadly rays will be your death <laughs> and but Marjo before he was trying to do a sci-fi you know B sci-fi acting career he had been a child tent revival preacher so i i don't know what what age exactly he was like 7 or something and doing these revival sermons it, it's really astonishing to imagine but he later did a documentary about all of the techniques that he would use in his preaching to get people to hand over money and stuff like that. It's uh, I've actually never seen the full documentary, but I've seen uh, some big clips from it. So someday I got to sit down and just watch the whole thing. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Chris. Chris says, hi, Rob and Joe. Writing in today to let you know I'm really enjoying the new Weird House Cinema episodes. I'm not a classic movie buff or big into old movies, B-movies, but I do very much enjoy a good bad movie. After listening to your first two episodes of Weird House Cinema, I had to write in and give you a recommendation based on my own weird movie watching experience. The year is 2006. I'm living in an apartment with two other guys during college. We splurge and get HBO for the summer. So between working odd shifts and making just enough money to make rent, we spent much of of the summer on the couch watching every movie that HBO had to offer. In particular, one movie caught our eye, uh, and after one watch, we knew we couldn't turn away. That movie was 2005's A Sound of Thunder. (laughs) I've seen this one. We got to finish the email first, then I'll talk about it. 
It was so hilariously bad and weird that one watch was never going to be enough. We subsequently watched it about uh, once or twice a week (laughs) while it was available on HBO that summer. But once we realized its run had come to an end, we knew what needed to be done. After some searching, three copies of the movie were procured, one for each member of our now A Sound of Thunder movie cult. To this day, we will text each other every so often and remind one another that it's time for a rewatch. It's a fun way to bring back some good memories and get lost in some bizarre mid-2000s sci-fi. It might be too recent to make the, the cut for Weird House Cinema, but I hope you enjoy a watch of it either way. All the best, and thanks for continuing to blow the mind. Get out of here with that talk about too recent. I have seen this movie. It is, it, it, yeah, I, I think it's totally worthy. It is so strange. Now, of course, it's it's based on the Ray Bradbury short story that mm-hmm. we've talked about on the show before. I think that came up in a previous episode. We did one one of our Halloween episodes about the Simpsons uh, time and punishment episode. Yeah, I think that was yep. it because that's based on Ray Bradbury a little bit, right? And. So the premise of the story is that there are these people who go back in time and hunt a dinosaur, and then that leads to these horrible changes in the future because of the butterfly effect rolling through time. Uh, but in this 2005 version, it, it it's just hard to describe how, how bizarre and awful this movie is. It's got these CGI velociraptors with baboon faces. It's it's really special. It has Ben Kingsley in it, though. Yes. It's got that going yes. for it. <laughs> this is a time when Ben Kingsley was uh, getting paid for work. He was collecting some checks, and this was one of those checks. <laughs> wow. Well, it, 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 I mean, it may, maybe worth checking out then, yeah, because I love the short story, and I, I have fond memories of the Ray Bradbury theater adaptation of it, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I guess was a little cheesy because, you know, it has dinosaurs in it. But, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious now to exactly, exactly what direction they go in with this. Yeah. It's been a long time, but I, I would be happy to revisit that one. So that, that may go on the list. Thanks, All Chris. Right. Uh, okay, let's wrap up with one more Weird House email. This one from Lindsay. Lindsay says, Hey, Rob and Joe. Hope y'all are doing well. Long time Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener and fellow Atlantean here. I've been really enjoying the Weird House Cinema series, even though I actually don't watch movies uh, at all very often. I often joke that I've never seen a movie from before the year 2000 because I basically haven't. (laughs) Whoa, that's okay. (laughs) Well, most of the good movies were made before 2000, so you're doing all right. (laughs) Uh, A post-2000 weird movie that I'd love to hear y'all cover is Jennifer's Body, 2009, a supernatural horror-slash-black comedy where Megan Fox plays an unwilling succubus. It's kind of a cult movie among feminists, and so bad it's good movie enthusiasts alike, and I think it's right up the Stuff to Blow Your Mind cohort's alley. Let me know what you think, Lindsay. Well, I gotta say, I watched this one a few years ago because it looked like it was gonna be extremely bad and a good, you know, funny Friday night movie, but I actually ended up thinking that it was extremely good. Huh, interesting. I I remember seeing the box art, and I think I was afraid to watch it because I thought it might be, I don't know, I was afraid it might be something kind of sleazy or something, you know? Um, I, I think but I never really looked into it. Uh, my memory is that it's it's very clever. Um, so oh, well, that's think, good to hear. I don't know. I mean, m- maybe I would feel differently if I watched it again. But I I think it's good. Cool. Well, we'll we'll put these on the list um, because yeah, I, I feel like a lot of the movies we gravitate to are from before uh, you know the turn of the millennium. 
But there are plenty of weird films that have come out uh, these last 20 years. Uh, you know, so some I think that we even have on the list already. So we, we should make sure that we cover like all the decades of cinematic history. Okay. I'm not sure where we are on that, that, that yet. Uh, I, need a, I need to have like a punch card for decades. <laughs> Um, oh, I should also point out, I think we had, had a listener write in about uh, the Battle for Endor episode, pointing out a couple of mispronunciations, one of which um, I believe I said uh, Cyan Phillips. It is Sean Phillips. Uh, so my apologies uh, to the people of Scotland uh, for doing uh, messing up on that one. The other one is Warwick Davis, not Warwick Davis, um, for you know the beloved... Um, uh, actor who plays Wicket, though on that one, this is a, a not much of an excuse. But I have to say, even when I hear people say Warwick Davis without stressing that 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 W in the middle of it, I some for some reason I hear the W in the middle of the name. I don't know if it's just by virtue of having read it, I still hear the W. Uh, I I have no like I say, not a good excuse, uh, but uh, but that's what's going through my mind. Uh, just wait till they get to how we've all the different ways we've said Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> I think they may have mentioned that as well. Uh, yeah. So again, our apologies to the Scottish people. Um, we'll come back and do another Highlander movie um, in penance for that. Yeah, maybe one set in Glasgow. How do you like that? Oh yeah, Gow. yeah. <laughs> it does. It does <laughs> make me wonder. People wonder, really angry. <laughs> I wonder what the best truly Scottish weird film is. Like not like outsider Scotland, but like true Scottish weird cinema. Like what is the, what is the pick? I wonder. I don't know. Well, we'll just have to have people clue us in. I thought I had one for a second, but then I realized it was not Scottish. It's Australian. And I was thinking of a different Russell Mulcahy movie. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not even close. Yeah. Oh, and I don't want to imply that Warwick Davis uh, is from Scotland. He's from uh, what? Surrey, England. So uh, anyway, um, I guess that's it. That's all the listener mail we have time for today, huh? That's this week. But hey, keep in touch. That's right. Yeah, we already have some good stuff lined up for next week as well. And so, yeah, the idea is, since we're going to be doing these weekly now, what, every Monday, that we're going to be able to have more of a correspondence with listeners. That's the the goal anyway. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, you'll find it all in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed, which you can access wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you know the deal. Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You just sign up for it. You, you uh, rate. You subscribe. Uh, you give a review if you can, if the platform allows it. And you can check out core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Weird House Cinema is on Friday. Uh, then we have some other stuff just sprinkled throughout the week. You're just going to have to discover it and uh, figure it out for yourselves. If you want to access us quickly, go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for our page. And there's a store button on there. You can check that out. We have a bunch of merch in there. You can get a T-shirt with our logo on it or a monster on it. And as of this recording, we already have one fan-created shirt in there that is the um, the Pandora's box opening and unleashing all of these fabulous things. That's a really cool design. You should check that out. And uh, I believe we have another uh, fan-created uh, design coming soon that uh, will feature a certain woodland uh, being that we recently discussed on the show. Oh, nice. I don't think I knew about that. Yeah, well, it's it's coming. I've seen a preliminary sketch. It's, it's looking great. Obviously, you have the secret leshy knowledge. 
I do. Okay. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.